I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6 as we finish off this chapter. Um, You know, we kind of, this is kind of a historic day. This is going to be our last outdoor service altogether. It's been pretty wonderful to meet outside uh, altogether. And um, uh, we've got some work to do in the parking lot. Someone asked me if that light is supposed to tilt back. It's not. Uh, so the parking lot is kind of falling onto the missions house below us. So we're going to do some work here in this parking lot eventually to get this fixed. But we are so glad we've had this to be able to meet together. Uh, I just want to say, too, we had a wonderful time last week with uh, our family together in Nashville for our youngest son's uh, wedding celebration. Uh, he and his wife, Graham, and his wife, Sophie, were married a year ago on 6 2020 He was excited about that date. But then a year later, it was very small a year ago because of COVID. But this last week, a week ago today, uh, we celebrated their wedding anniversary with another ceremony, short ceremony. Uh, But they repeated their vows for the friends that they had and just had a great time. And and thanks to Pastor Zach for preaching as well. Um, Well, on uh, we've been this series on the life of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, remember that, that Mark is really Peter's gospel. All the, the scholars think that Peter was the one that told this story to Mark and that Mark wrote down Peter's words. And, uh, and that same order, Mark in all likelihood was the first gospel, and Matthew and Luke follow Mark's order uh, almost every time. And um, so they used Mark probably as a reference point as they wrote their Gospels. Um, you know, I'm sure most of you have experienced the power of nature, uh, maybe not in a good way. Uh, I, I know uh, there are a couple times I have, and it's nothing compared to, I'm sure, what some of you have been through. If you've been through an earthquake, maybe, or a tornado. I'm being from, from Kansas. I've never been through a tornado. I've seen them at a distance, but <clears throat> never experienced one. I'm glad. I hope it stays that way. Uh, my brother, who lives in Kansas, said he could never move to California because of the earthquakes. The year he told me that, they had an earthquake. And we had a water spout, kind of a tornado off the coast, so I'm fine here. But um, one time I was with some friends. We were on Lake Michigan. I think I've mentioned this before. We were sailing, and one of the days we encountered <clears throat> in the middle of the lake like really big waves, five, 10 foot waves. They were too big for us. We were get, getting some water on the boat. We were a little scared. Uh, we made it through fine, obviously, but uh, it, it, was, it was a little bit of a harrowing experience. Uh, one time Kathy and I were driving out uh, to San Diego and we were going through Texas. We were outside of El Paso and it looked like somebody had opened a, a, a big thing of ice and it congealed together and threw it out on the ground in front of us. And I was like, what is that? It was hail. And some of those giant hailstones hit our car and, uh, and did a, a ton of damage, like uh, almost totaled our car. <clears throat> it was pretty scary. We had to pull over. There was no, there were no cacti to get underneath. There were no bridges. There was no, there were no trees. It was, it was scary. Um, we're going to be looking at <clears throat> one of those powers of nature things here in this passage and, and how Jesus has command of it. But on the top of the outline, it says this. On seeing Jesus multiply the bread and the fish, 
Many wanted to make him their king right then. Jesus knew this was not his time and not God's way. And so he sent his disciples to Bethsaida while he escaped into the hills where he could be alone and pray. The disciples were learning that without Jesus' provision, they could do nothing. Jesus then walks on water and heals many, pointing to his true identity as the great I am. So he calmed the storm back in chapter four. <clears throat> and here it's like he takes it to another level and walks on water before calming the storm. Uh, ordinary men don't walk on water. Uh, mere men don't rise from the dead. And Jesus is pointing to the fact again that he is God. Maybe in thinking of this event, Peter and, and other events Peter, that Peter personally witnessed, he wrote this in 2 Peter, that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The early church knew something about the myths, the mythical religions of Egypt and, and Rome, um, and they didn't buy it. They weren't buying into it at all. Uh, they rejected what the Greeks and the Romans taught. And they worshiped instead and followed Jesus whom they could see and, and feel and touch. Like, like John writes, John uh, the apostle writes in 1 John. He says, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and, are, and have touched with our hands. And we're going to look at an example of this in this passage. Uh, as we look at, at, uh, at the end of Mark chapter 6. Jesus was a real historical person. He was not a myth. And in these verses, we have evidence of real events that took place by eyewitnesses, namely Peter, as he tells this to Mark. And the, que the key question for us is this, what would God have us to learn from these verses? so that our hearts aren't hardened like it says the disciples' hearts were hardened, so that we don't lack understanding like the disciples did. How will we respond to what God wants to teach us this morning? So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. We're going to keep going in just a little bit, but we're going to stop there for now. The first thing we see in these verses, and it's number one on your outline, is how uh, that our faith should be in Jesus alone. We know that. What a great reminder. Our faith should be in Jesus alone. Jesus had just fed maybe as many, we talked about this, as 15,000, maybe more. 
because uh, it was the 5,000 men who were there, but then they had their families. And <clears throat> the excitement of having a political deliverer was at a feverish pitch among the people. They were expecting a, a, a political leader and they thought Jesus was that political leader. John 6 kind of sheds some light on that. In John 6, it says, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, multiplying the bread and the fish, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And when Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. And so it's in between this, him slipping away to the hills by himself, that he sends the disciples away. So it's true that a throne awaits Jesus. But there's a cross in between there. Jesus knows that. And so in verse 45, we see, and this is letter A on the outline, that God's guidance doesn't guarantee smooth sailing. I think this is important for us to know because all the time I talk with people who say, God's directed me here. Why is it so difficult? God directed the disciples to be on the lake, but it was difficult for them. So Jesus takes control of this politically charged situation. And he sends his disciples away. Look at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So the language here indicates urgency. He wants them to get in the boat quickly. You know, parents, you know what it's like to get your kids in the car when they don't want to go, when they're having a good time. We had four kids. I remember when they were little, we'd be in a hurry to go somewhere. and Invariably, they were not in a hurry. And I think, this, I think the disciples were having such a great time ministering. Maybe they were having a little, they were being a little bit slow about getting in the boat. And, and that's the urgency that's in the, the text. Jesus made them get in there and, and he wanted them to move right along. The disciples had been out on the lake for hours in a situation that seemed very exhausting, very frustrating, and potentially dangerous for them. And as they go out onto the lake, keep in mind, they have been obedient to get out there. They're not in the, this mess because they were ignorant or because they were haughty or because they were being selfish or unwise. They're in this situation that's beyond their strength. And that's exactly where Jesus wants them to be. C.H. Spurgeon comments on this verse and he says they're sailing was not merely under his sanction, but by his express command. They were in the right place, and yet they met with a terrible storm. Jesus purposefully sent them into trouble for the same reason that God sometimes allows trouble into our lives. Maybe sends us into trouble with a, with a goal in mind. And the goal is that, that we would see his glory and that we would be drawn closer to him and our faith would grow. That we would depend on him more and more. Dr. Helen Rosevere uh, wrote a book called He Gave Us a Valley. She was a medical doctor from Ireland who was in the Belgian Congo at the time. And there was a, a, a tremendous rebellion that broke out in uh, the Congo. And her hospital was taken over by rebels. She was held hostage. She was beaten. She was raped. 
And she put herself in that situation because she was being obedient. When you submit your life to Jesus and are, you live out an obedient commitment to him, sometimes you'll expose yourself to sorrows. Sometimes you will expose yourself to difficult times in your life because you are being obedient. For the follower of Jesus, peace isn't found when things are going easy in our life. His peace we know and experience sometimes in the most difficult times. That's when God comes to us and says, and says, I want you to know my peace. I saw a great picture one time of a, a storm that was going all around on the ocean and there was a little cove and in the cove was a dove sitting on the water or a bird sitting on the water and, it, and, the, and, it's, and the, the title was the peace of God. And I think that's a great picture of what peace, storms can be raging all around us but that's when God wants us to know his peace. It's precisely at those moments when God shows up in our lives. And God's plan is is not always easy, but it's always best. And that peace is yours. And when the really hard things come, that's when God wants to give you his wisdom and strength and his peace. So what are you going through right now in your life where you need to know the peace of God, where you need to know that he's there and give him, for him to give you wisdom, for him to give you strength. If you're going through a dark time right now, ask God what he wants to teach you. Don't miss out on the opportunity to learn what he wants you to learn. I heard a young gal uh, just this week who was asking her, her grandmother who had been married 60 years what the secret was to living uh, and, and being married for such a long time. And the grandmother said, well, you know, I asked the Lord what he wanted me to do. And the answer was very clear. He wanted me to be obedient to him and to love my spouse, your grandpa, with his strength. Now, I'll tell you, that's not just the key for a successful marriage. That's the key for a successful life. Being obedient to, to God and his word and loving the people around us with the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. The second thing we see in verse 46 is the truth that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for me. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, it doesn't say how he prayed or what he prayed, But it's interesting, there are three times, and you've got these on the outline, that Mark talks about Jesus praying. And those three times are the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. What we looked at just a couple weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000. And then near the end of his ministry in Gethsemane, before he goes out on the cross. In other words, every time Jesus faced a critical moment in his life, he prayed. And we know he just didn't pray then. We know that it was his habit of doing that. That's what it says in, in Mark 1.35. That it was his habit to do this. And Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, man, what a great pattern for us as we pray. 
Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. We know from his high priestly prayer in John 17 that he prays for his disciples. I can't imagine him not praying for his disciples when he's there. And in John 17, we, say that he, we see that he prays for us as well, for all those who will believe on, on him because of them, because of the disciples. Jesus, this passage doesn't just say that he prayed about uh, what he prayed about, but with, he, he had to be aware, I know he was aware, that there was a spiritual battle going on. And our prayers should reflect that same thing. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, he says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. You know, it's, life goes on, and, and, <clears throat> but we, we, I think because of that, we, we tend to forget that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And when we go to prayer, it's war. That was what Jesus knew. That's what we need to know as we pray. There was something going on all around him. Jesus knew that better than anyone did. And he prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. Please know that. Remember that, that Jesus prays for you. He says he won't leave you or forsake you, but not just that. He's not just with you. He prays for you on behalf of you to the Father. That's his promise in Hebrews 7. What a great reminder it is for us. And we see Jesus, again, we mentioned the three times. We know he spent time alone with his Father. So who are we to think that we can make it through without spending time in prayer? without spending time alone with God. We're more dedicated maybe to watching a sitcom than we are to being disciplined in spending time alone with God. That, that's got to be a priority for us. That, that's our strength. That's our strength when we're in war, when we're in a battle. I can give you so many examples of people sitting right next to you who have joy in their lives because they're following the Lord. And you know that they're spending time with him because, you know, it's like a, <clears throat> when you spend time with the Lord and, and, it, and he fills you up, it's like filling a coffee cup to the brim. You've done that before. I've done that. And then I'm trying to walk and not spill. It's too hot to drink. And then it spills on my hand and on the floor. It makes a mess. But it's like that's what happens when we are filled up with the joy of the Lord. It spills out onto other people. It impacts them. It, it encourages them. And people live godly lives because they're like a branch that's plugged into the vine. They're attached to the vine. You know, it's in that context of John 15 that Jesus says, abide in me. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then, that's an if then, a conditional situation that if we're abiding in him, if his words are abiding in us, then we can ask whatever we want and it will be given. You want to be effective in your prayer life? You want to have prayers answered? That's the way to do it. <clears throat> Abide in Jesus. Make sure his words are abiding in you. 
And so we live connected to the vine. Are you desperate for God? Are you desperate for time with him? He wants us to be as desperate for him as we are for whatever we want him to do for us. He wants us to be as desperate for him as we are for for food and for water. He will fill our, our, he will fill us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. The next thing we see in verses 47 to 50, and this is the letter C there, is that Jesus exercises power over nature. Uh, Look at it again, verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. He knows where the disciples are. He knows what they're going through. Verse 47 says that they were in the middle of a lake. So the lake, the Sea of Galilee is 14 miles long and seven miles across, seven by 14. So if they're in the middle of the lake, they're a couple miles out, at least probably. And if all Jesus wanted to do was to calm the storm and to get their struggle to stop, he could have done that from the shore. He could have just said, be calm, and it would have been calm. But he didn't, he didn't need to take a walk on the water to do that. Jesus takes the walk because he's not after solving the difficulty. He's after the men who are in the midst of the difficulty. He wants them. He wants to get their attention. Trust me, he does. And the next phrase in verses 48 and 49 is pretty curious. He was about to pass by them. At the first reading, it's almost like Jesus was trying to beat him to the other side by walking. That's not at all what he's trying to say here. Um, A better translation is actually he desired to come alongside them. And I think the best way to understand it is the way that same phrase is used in the Old Testament. I'll give you an example from 1 Kings. You've got the reference on your outline. It says this about Elijah, God's encounter with Elijah. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. So just as God in the Old Testament passed by Elijah... In the same way, he wanted to pass by the disciples. Why? So that they would see his glory. So that they would see that he's God. So that they would believe more. Only God can supersede nature and walk on water. And so Jesus is showing the disciples beyond question, he's God. But not only by his actions. And we're going to see that in just a bit. But then it says in verse 49, but when he saw them walking on the lake, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. It's no surprise they cry out. I would cry out. You would cry out. In fact, another paraphrase, paraphrase says they screamed, scared to death. Ah, they were terrified. I, I, again, I get him. I get that. I would be as well. Matthew uh, 14 gives the same account. But what does Matthew 14 add in there? Peter walking on the water. And you know what I think is really fascinating? Is that Mark is focused on Jesus, not on the disciples in the boat. And remember who's giving Mark 
the story is Peter. The focus, Peter doesn't want the focus to be on him walking on the water. He wants the focus to be on Jesus. So Mark doesn't even mention Peter walking on the water. Mark's emphasis is on Jesus and his power to save. And it makes me think of John the Baptist's prayer when I think of Peter not wanting to mention himself that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Oh, what a great prayer for all of us. Lord, that you would increase in my life and that I would decrease. That's true humility. It's not thinking about yourself less and less. It's thinking about Jesus more and more. And so the bread of life, Jesus has just fed thousands with bread. And Jesus, the living water, as it says in John 7, has just walked on water. And Mark isn't finished with his portrait of the servant king because the next thing we see in verses 50 and 51 is that Jesus' person speaks to our fears. You know how many times fear not is in the Bible? I don't know this for sure, but I've heard it's in the Bible over 365 times, at least one for every day of the year. Fear not. This account isn't just there for us to see that Jesus wants to rescue us from, your, from our problems like he did for the disciples. This is there so that Jesus can communicate clearly that he's God and that we needn't be afraid of what's going to happen. And fear is a normal human emotion. We fear things. But Jesus in his person says, you do not have to fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So focus on me when you're afraid. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? I think we've all gone through fears at different levels about this last year. What have you feared? What do you fear now? What the I am, and that's who Jesus identifies himself as, what the I am says to you is you don't have to fear. There's no fear in love. I love you. Jesus seeks to calm the terror they must have felt. So look at verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, I am, do not be afraid. Remember, they were being obedient. And Jesus is right there with them in their obedience. When Jesus says this, he's standing next to the boat. Get the, picture this in your mind. The wind is still howling. The waves are still crashing. The white tops are all around them on the lake. And Jesus says, I am. And the Greek simply says, I am, have courage. I am is the way God identifies himself to Moses in the burning bush. Remember that back in Exodus chapter 3. And Jesus declares in John 8, he says, I, I am. And, and, and I don't know if you remember the, the story in John 8, but right after that, uh, the Pharisees take offense at that because he's claiming to be God and they, they seek to kill him. So they knew exactly what he was saying when he said, I am. Jesus keeps doing and saying things for the disciples to identify himself as God. He wants the disciples to get who he is. 
And Jesus not only walks where only God can walk on the water, but he calls himself by God's name, the great I am. And he says, I am, that means you don't need to be afraid. I'm in control of this nature. I'm in control of this lake. So don't fear. Look at verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And look at their response. Same verse. They were completely amazed. Should they have been amazed? He just fed 5,000 people with three loaves and two fish. I don't think they should have been amazed, but then I I think maybe I would have been amazed too. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he proved himself trustworthy. Time and again, he turned impossible situations into a time for him to be glorified. What's way too difficult for you right now? What seems like an impossibility for you? Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a family matter. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's an addiction. Whatever it is in your life, what God says to you right now is, I am. I can take this situation and be glorified. You just obey me and you love the people around you with the love of God, my love that's been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit that indwells you. That's what he says to you. God wants to take your impossible situation and be glorified. He used experience after experience in the lives of the disciples to help them cultivate an abiding trust in him. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. He wants us to grow in our faith. You know, the Bible says that your faith grows by the hearing of God's word. That's my prayer for you this morning, that your faith will grow. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I love the way Martin Luther translated that into German. I don't speak German, but I've read this translation and an English translation of the German translation. Martin Luther says, Romans 10, 17 says, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by a message preached about Jesus. And so he helps them cultivate that and put their faith into action. And that's what he wants us to do, to put our faith into action. And then the last thing we see is that Jesus is patient with the disciples and with us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. If you've never thanked God for his patience with you, you should. Because he is patient with you. Mark points out the disciples' continued lack of trust. Look at verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples. You would think he would. You would think, hey, you guys, didn't you see me do the feed the 5,000 fathers, the 15,000 people? What, what, what does that say to you? What does this say to you that I'm walking on water? What does this say to you that I'm calming the storm? He knows that they have a lot to learn and to go through. He doesn't give up on them. And he doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on us. On our ignorance. 
on our hard-heartedness. We might call them thick-headed. I'm not implying you're thick-headed, but if you're thinking that, well, maybe it does apply to all of us. Sometimes it's hard to get things through. But I think we need to go easy on the disciples. You know, we've had 2,000 years. We have a completed New Testament. We have all these scholars around us to help us understand and write commentaries and, and do all the research to help us understand the, the times and, and the meaning, the Greek and the Hebrew and, and on and on. We, 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 get, we get all these things clarified for us. The disciples didn't have that. What we're invited to say is, Lord, I know you've been faithful to me over and over again. I know that you can do the impossible. And so, Lord, will you take my impossible situation right now? And will you be glorified in my life? That's what he wants us to do. We have God's response to this back in Luke chapter 1. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's why we honor God with big requests. Not just with things that we can answer, but we honor him with things that are impossible and asking him those things in prayer. Verse 52 is, is really about Jesus being patient with us. And I think patience is one of those characteristics where that communicates Christ's likeness when we're patients. So how are you doing it on the patient quotient? How are you doing in being patient? That's a dangerous prayer to pray, and, and it's a prayer we should pray. Lord, help me to be patient. Because when we pray it, we get opportunities to be patient that aren't always fun. And then finally, in the last four verses, we see that this is number two on the outline. Jesus invites us to come to him when we hurt. Verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into the villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. The word wherever in verse 56 seems to indicate a general summary of the events that happened over a period of time. Jesus cares for his sheep. He brings healing to them. He refused no one. They brought him to the market, people to the marketplaces because that's where they thought Jesus had the best opportunity of seeing them. And they had the best opportunity of touching his garment and being healed. And so we see in verses 53 to 55 that Jesus wants us to come to him. That's letter A under number two. Jesus wants us to come to him. The more... There are more hurting people here in these verses who desperately want Jesus to heal them. They want to walk again. They want to see again. They want, to, they want the demons that they've been possessed by to stop bothering them. And what Jesus wants us to do is to be desperate for him as much as we are for being healed. And I think verse 55 is so interesting. It says, they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. The needy would all gather in these common areas. You know, we pray and we take aspirin or we go to the doctor and we talk about maybe a surgery that we might need. They didn't have those options. They were at the end of their rope. 
There's no medication to speak of. There's no, there's no doctors to go and visit in the way that we have doctors to visit. Luke was a doctor, but it was way different than what we have today. No technology, no surgeries. And they were desperate. And then the last thing we see in these verses, look at in verse 56, is that Jesus heals those who believe in him. And wherever he went into the villages, the towns or the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. At the very minimum, these people believed Jesus had the power to heal them. They didn't know exactly who he was. But Jesus wanted this to point to the fact that he is their salvation. He can heal their souls. And they begged Jesus to heal them, and, and he did. And all who touched him were healed. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which is a, a book that was super instrumental in my life when I first came to faith, uh, I would highly recommend it. He says this, The true God is great and terrible just because he is always with me and his eye is always upon me. Living becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of an omniscient, omnipotent creator. That's who we live our lives before. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. He is more compassionate and more powerful than we ever imagined towards us, towards you. Remember, he has the very hairs of your head numbered. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. If you trust Jesus for your salvation, your life should show evidence of that. Does your life show evidence of your belief? Think about this. Every time we sin, we're not believing God. And we need to confess that sin. We say we believe, but how do we live it out? Do the people around you see that you are living what you say you believe? Or is there a gap in there that you need to pray that God fills by you being obedient? by filling your life with the word. When you're grieving, when you're depressed, whatever it is you're going through, what, what do you run to? What do you do? Do you go shopping? Watch Netflix? Go and buy something? Go and eat? Look at pornography? Those are all empty. Jesus wants you to run to him. We don't just trust him for our eternal destiny. We trust him for our daily needs. You know, we don't eat steak every night or french fries. But when I do have french fries, I like Heinz ketchup. Or when I have steak, I like Heinz 57 steak sauce. I never knew this until this week, but uh, Mr. Hines was a committed Christian. 
and I ran across the beginning of his will. And listen to what he writes. He says, I'm looking forward to the time when my earthly career will end. I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will as the most important item in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, in which were, in which were the usual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God through Jesus Christ. This legacy left be, this was the legacy left me by my mother, a, strong, a woman of strong faith. And so to my faith in Jesus, I attribute any success I have attained. I will never eat a French fry or a piece of steak again with Heinz on it that I don't think of this. And that he wanted to, to point people to Jesus. And that Jesus was his strength. In the end, Jesus walked across stormy waters of judgment for you and for me. And Jesus took on the sickness of our sin and healed us by taking that on. And he says to you, take heart, do not be afraid, I am. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the I am who inhabits us through your Holy Spirit that you are with us and you are for us and you are our only hope. Thank you, Father, that your light shines brightest in dark places and let us be lights for you this week. Help us to live in gratefulness. Help our hearts to not be hardened and to recognize your power around us in our lives. Father, if there's someone here who has never put their trust and their confidence in you alone for their salvation, that they would respond to you in faith right now. That they would let someone know that they've done that. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy some good fellowship together. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one King reigning over So I will not fear for this truth.